We welcome you to this edition of the Tuesday People podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Album. This podcast inspired by the book Tuesdays with Maury, which I wrote now 25 years ago. Lessons learned alongside my old college professor as he was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease, a book that was small and just supposed to pay his medical bills and went on to become something that I never could have anticipated and now is read and embraced by people around the world. And so we do this podcast to talk about some of those lessons revisited on a weekly basis, our own sort of Tuesdays with all of you, and see how they hold up and pertain to today's world. Alongside, as always, is Lisa Goitz, my good friend and producer. Lisa, nice to have you here. Good morning, Mitch. And we want to welcome a special guest to today's program. Uh, many of you, if you read the book Tuesdays with Maury, know that while it's centered on Maury and Mai's relationship during that period of time before he died, Maury had family of his own, including two sons. And his oldest son, Jonathan Schwartz, is kind enough to join us for this week's edition of Tuesday People. John, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Mitch. How are you? Good. Glad to have you with us. I I don't know how much you've paid attention to the podcast or how much you know about it, but uh, you and your family are spoken about often by our audience, and I think they appreciate uh, getting a chance to hear from you directly. Well, it's my pleasure. Honestly, I've only come to the podcast uh, recently, but now that I know that it's here, it's uh, it's really wonderful, especially when I hear uh, recordings of uh, Dad's voice. That's uh, really special. Yeah. How does that make you feel? I've often wondered about that, you and your brother Rob and your mom Charlotte. Uh, when you hear Maury's voice from, geez, now it's, yeah, it's 25 years ago. It's been, it, it's, it's really special. It's uh, there's such a gulf of time, and you carry you know various memories uh, in your heart and in your soul, and and you know when you hear the voice again, it adds uh, well punctuation is an understatement, but it it, it provides some substance that uh, that all that just is not there and is and is greatly missed and so so hearing the voice is actually quite moving and you know it puts me back in in various rooms and circumstance and experience with uh, with dad so now when very I, when special I, when i was visiting with him it was you know somewhat formalized i came every tuesday he knew i was coming uh, after the first few weeks, we sort of had this blueprint of just discussing a different topic every week. Uh, eventually, as I've told you and, and, and Rob, your dad wanted me to write an honors thesis. Uh, that's what he thought we would do with the tapes. Uh, I didn't have the heart to go into the fact that I wasn't enrolled anywhere, so I don't really know how I would do an honors thesis or for whom. I think your dad just thought, well, he'll find some place to do an honors thesis or maybe I'll get him to go back into graduate school. Uh, but eventually, <laughs> eventually it became a, a book project uh, towards the end, only towards the end of your dad's life, and then became Tuesdays with Maury. But each Tuesday, we sort of had a plan, and I would come and I'd say, well, I want to talk about this subject, and he was up for that and was very into looking into the depth of a subject through the eyes of a man who realized his life was about to end. Your visits, on the other hand, I'm sure were quite different. When you had your whatever days of the week with Dad, not with Maury, and would sit and talk with him during those same months, the last eight or nine months of his life, 
What were your conversations mostly about? Well, as you know, uh, in your in your uh, less formal talks, Dad really wanted to hear about life. He wanted to hear what was going on, what you were feeling, what your troubles were, because that was, you know, sort of the meat of existence, you know, the experience and sharing that experience. Um, there's actually a, a, a really great little uh, story that I like to tell people because it, I think it goes to the heart of what dad, you know, liked to talk about. And if, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to just uh, share that. Sure. So uh, when I was working, when I was still working and uh, living in Boston and sort of uh, struggling with, with school and, various aspects of life and my personal relationships. Uh, we had had a talk about uh, uh, drinking and that sort of thing. And, and this, is, this is where dad really, I, I think, had insight for me. He, he never had a problem with anybody imbibing or anything, but, the que- but he asked me a really important question. And I think it's very apropos for uh, today because we're all under so much pressure from uh, and stress from various things. He said, Jonathan, why do you feel you have to go through life in, you know, a euphoric or altered state? What is it that really is serving you in that capacity? And he said, look, I'm not making a judgment. I'm not telling you what to do or what not to do. But if, if you had to ask yourself a question, ask that. And, you know, the conversation moved on. But that particular question comes back to me so frequently when I'm faced with uh, various challenges and feel like I want to sort of run away from those because they're either uncomfortable or they're stressful or whatever. And then I think about what dad said. It's like, you know, uh, it's much the, the pain of the growth or the experience is far, far outweighs in a positive sense than anything else that I could do. Right. And I, I, so that's kind of the tenor of what dad and I would talk about. We talk about life and how, how to manage that. You know, he would frequently, uh, bring that type of a concept up about going through something in order to fully experience it. And of course he was facing that himself, you know, going through the, the worry, going through the pain that ALS brought him, going through the mental cycle or depression of, I'm not going to live that much longer and recognizing it for what it is. Uh, he called it detachment in the formal conversations with me about, you know, okay, look at it, look at your anger or look at your depression or look at your resentment, detach yourself from it and say, okay, that is anger. That is depression. That's what it feels like. I recognize that's what I'm going through. That's what I'm feeling, but I don't have to be a slave to that feeling forever. I'm recognizing it. I'm I'm, I'm enduring it, but I'm going to put it aside and, and say that there are other feelings to come. And it sounds like in a, in a less formal way, that's a little bit of what he was saying to you. Oh, I, I would agree wholeheartedly. Um, you know, he, he would say that, you know, you, you have to put in, you have to put in the work to get the reward. And part of that work is, uh, 
sort of confronting that that thing that stymies you and realizing that it is not you. It's a it's a construct either outside yourself based on somebody else's judgment or or based on a on a feeling that uh, you don't want to experience. Right. But he suggested that if you fully experience all of these things, that there is much more to be gained by sort of moving through them and uh, getting to the other side than there is in trying to dull or or avoid right run away from the situations exactly yeah yeah interestingly i i pulled a couple of little clips here uh and which i want to play for you maury and i were talking about how lenient a parent he was uh or not Hmm. and he said this i had a principle against pushing them to study you know and i think that was a mistake i think i should have pushed more at their well, doing learning and books and what have you, rather than being very sort of easygoing about that. I was very permissive. A certain amount of discipline and order is really quite important, mm-hmm. and I don't think I did enough of that. Did you encourage them to uh, experiment socially when they were younger? Did you? Did you? Did you? let them uh, go out with girls as soon as they wanted? Did oh, you, yeah. Were you strict about if they used marijuana or anything like that? Well, I was halfway that way. I said, I don't want you to do it in the house. Uh-huh. Just do I don't care what you do out here. You stick up the house. What do you call do that, so. <laughs> That's dead. <laughs> That's the way you remember it too. Uh, abso- absolutely. Um, I think, Dad. I don't remember a specific conversation about you know uh, specifically imbibing in various substances, but I do remember the whole uh, academic portion of this. And I think that uh, if, if uh, Dad and I had. Uh, had an accord on sort of uh, higher learning, if you will, uh, was that neither of us um, pushed each other enough to go forward in a, in a better way, you know? And so if there was any regret there, it would be that. And uh, I sometimes wish, actually frequently, I wish that dad would have, uh, you know, been a little bit more forceful. Maybe, uh, maybe our relationship wouldn't have been, at least at that time, all of that uh, smooth. And I think he uh, assuaged the pushing in 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 favor of the smooth because he himself right. wanted. You know, relationship was so important to him. Right. He Why didn't want I conflict. Want to... Right. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Relationship over accomplishment, and of course, uh, your your dad embodied that so many ways in this conversations with me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
happy price, price line. I wonder, um, you know, every kid, especially boys, they look up to their dad uh, as, as a figure of, of, of strength, leadership, guidance in, in, in who they are. Uh, to many boys, uh, when they're growing up, their dad's their hero or a form of a superhero. Whether he's physically strong or not, that's not the point. The point is he's in control. Um, if you had that as a, as a boy uh, and even as a man, as it morphs as we get older, when your dad was stricken with ALS and you saw the physical decay and the need to be carried from place to place, I'm sure you did your share of that, the need to wipe his his nose and reach down his throat and pull up phlegm and, and, and massage his back to try to get him to cough the stuff out of his system and, and maybe even wipe his rear end, all the things that people had to do for him. How did you as a son go through that vis-a-vis the image that we all want to have of our dad being strong and, you know, our own personal superhero? So there are two aspects to this. And the, the first aspect is, uh, as his body decayed, the uh, the spirit, uh, at least you know, in my view, grew stronger, and he was never more present than in his most physically diminished state. On on the other side of that, when your father is standing in a walker, uh, because that's the only thing he can do to stand up. And, you know, he said, you know, Jonathan, I've got to go to the bathroom and I I can't do it myself. And so, you know, you know, helping him to uh, to urinate, if you will, is uh, it was uh, in retrospect a a, a positive experience that I could help him do it. But at the at the various times, it was probably the most uh, painful and challenging thing that I've ever been through because, you know, here is somebody that had been, although not physically powerful, but he'd been physically present because, you know, he he loved to dance, you know, he loved to be, you know, in that moment in a very physical way, but now he couldn't, and he couldn't even help himself. And so, you know, it's just this enormously challenging experience to be with him in that respect. Yeah. So... Did he did, did he uh, speak to you about that as he did with me and others uh, to address it and say don't be embarrassed this is as he said to me once this is the carton I was shipped in you know this isn't me uh, you know I'm I, I'm inside I'm in my eyes look in my eyes don't pay attention to this decaying body did he have to do that with you and and, and Rob as well I can't I can't speak for what he said to uh, to Rob uh, but. You know, he, he didn't say that to me. He says, look, I don't want you. So, and this is where I think he was, uh, his generosity was overwhelming. He said, look, if you don't want to do this, if you can't do this, if this is too painful, you know, you don't have to do that. You know, it's, oh, I, I will find, we'll find a way for either someone else to help uh, and we'll, we'll get it done that way. And so, you know, the feelings that that statement brings up are are many. You know, one of them is shame that I'm not helping my father. The other one is, you know, how, can, how should I be such afraid of someone that, 
you know, of doing something when, you know, quite frankly, when I was an infant, you know, it was wiping my ass. So, right. you know, it, it all, it, I'm sorry if that was a crash. No, but, no, uh, I get it. But he, um, but, you know, it comes full circle and it's, and at the end of the day, it ended up being a matter of pride and feeling pride that I could help my father in his time of need as he tried so valiantly and succeeded to help me through my, uh, you know, my growing up. Yeah. Was there one particular physical moment that you remember an encounter between the two of you that stays with you sharply even to this day? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's a physical encounter, but, you know, towards, uh, before we knew he had ALS, he liked to, uh, he liked to have some private time with his boys. So he would, uh, he would take each of my brother and I, at least this is my recollection, recollection. He would take each of us on, you know, a vacation it was just him and me or him and Rob. And, uh, I remember talking about somebody that I was having, you know, just a tremendous problem with. And, you know, I was sitting at a dinner table with him and I was just absolutely enraged because, you know, there was, there seemed to be no, no way to resolve this without, you know, doing something that was totally inappropriate for everybody concerned. And he said, look, you can only control your own actions and feelings. You know, there's nothing else you have control over. And know that for this particular person, you know, I've had many of those feelings myself, but what I have to remember is everybody is who they are. And if you let them go or you, uh, you open your heart and let them, you know, be in your heart with love, then you'll know that it is not something that's done to you. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, this is all for you, whether you uh, perceive it that way or not. And that was, and so sitting at that dinner, I went from this uh, this moment of rage to this. You know, I can, I can, I can see that. I can, I can move forward because I'd never thought of sort of opening the heart, if you will, instead of mm-hmm. just I need to resolve this. I need to be, you know forceful that's the only way and actually opening the heart softened the whole thing Mm. so that was very important you know you talk about the time that he gave to you and that he gave to rob your brother i often wondered because you know being at your house during those final months of maury's life and and seeing even on tuesdays which he reserved for me but seeing the number of people who came before I got there, the number of people who came just as I was leaving, and then hearing mm-hmm. the whole lineup of people who came on Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it, it just seemed like such a revolving door of people, former students, uh, co-workers, uh, friends, family, Ted Koppel, uh, people who wanted to interview him You know, ever since the first Nightline program, and that went on for the better part of eight months or so. Did you ever feel like, well, our father is being all things to all people, but you know we have limited time with him. We, we'd prefer to, you know, have more of him to ourselves. 
No, you know, I never, I never felt that because one of the beauties of dad was, you know, this, this is where his heart shone. This is where he was himself and to see him sort of in his power and in his, uh, in presence, uh, you know, that was uplifting because now the, you know, the demise of the body didn't matter. You know, it was, uh, I reveled in that. It was just, it was a, a, a beautiful thing, you know, and I lived locally. I could go over the house anytime and in fact did. And so I knew that there would, at least while he was alive, I, I would always have time with him. Hmm. You know, he also, but. He, he spoke to me about uh, not wanting to, put on demands and you've alluded to it already in some ways uh, on his family while he was uh, going through his, his uh, terminal illness. I'll uh, play you a little cut of him saying that. Fortunately, it doesn't all fall on them with my heavy burden of, you know, distress at times. It's just on Charlotte or Robert John. I have a principle that I don't make any more demands on anybody than they want to give, if at all possible, sometimes. Which means that applies all across the board, you know? So that Charlotte wants to go to bed at 10 o'clock because she's so exhausted, she goes to bed at 10 o'clock, yeah. you know? And if, even if I want to stay up and talk or something. And so uh, I try to work out within my means, so to speak, some kind of balance between what is good for me and what is good for the other person, mm -hmm. rather than that kind of, ah, I'm so needy, and you've got to give everything, and I can give very little. He seemed very concerned about not burdening the family too much with the disease, not wanting, for example, you were local, but Rob was living overseas, and he talked about not wanting to say to Rob, you need to move here for this last year. You know, I'm going to die and you need to be here. He said, I would never do that. I would never put that kind of pressure on him because he didn't want, as he phrased it, ALS to, to destroy more than his life. You know, two lives, three lives, four lives. Did, did he express that to you that way? And, and, and how did that make you feel? You know, honestly, that particular conversation never, never came up. You know, uh, other than it's like, you know, I know you have to work. I know you have to do these things for your own life. And so whatever you have to do for yourself, whether it's uh, whether it's recreation, whether it's um, relationship related, you know, uh, something else, you know, that's OK. And so I think that's how it manifested with me. He never actually said, I don't want to burden you. I don't want you to do anything that you don't want to. You know, it was more like, you know, live your life mm -hmm. when you and come visit. That's that's how he handled that with me specifically. Did uh, you ever have a goodbye type of moment or talk uh, when it got close to the end? No, Um because I was over the house frequently, we just we just 
were sort of father and son or uh, or family as best we could, given his physical limitations. Um, I think the whole process, once we found out he had ALS, I think every talk was kind of a goodbye, but there was no, there was no specific, I'm going to see you because we didn't know when he was actually going to pass. And there was no sort of reason to say, well, I'm going to say goodbye now. Mm-hmm. I just, it didn't seem to make sense. He always said, I always knew that he would be present whether he was there physically or not. Do you regret now not having some kind of formal farewell sentence? No, no, because, you know, right, even though the, his corporeal self has uh, passed, you know, uh, he's in my heart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so he's ever present throughout my day, whether I'm with my wife, my puppies, my friends, my brother, my, you know, mom, you know, uh, he's always there. Yeah. And I think there's no, call it faith, if you will. You know, my faith is that he's always there. And those people that uh, have been in my heart and continue to be, well, whether I pass or they pass, you know, we'll all be there. Yeah, death ends a life, but not a relationship. That was his, uh, wasn't, he didn't originate the line, but he he used it frequently. And uh, it seems to repeat itself with everybody I ever meet or have met who knew your dad, including, of course, your family, that the relationship still goes on. Oh, I, there's not a day go, goes by that I'm not sort of seeking his advice and finding it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can fi- you can find it in your heart, or you can find it on a library shelf uh, in, in different uh, places as well. I never had a chance to ask you uh, in all the years we've known one another, but I'll ask you here now: Did the publication of Tuesdays with Maury and as a book, and then it's it's subsequent surprising reach, which, as you know well, none of us expected. This was not supposed to be the book that it became. Um, has that had any interesting or unusual repercussions for you as his son when people find out that you're Maury Schwartz's son, the Maury of Tuesdays with Maury? Is there, does something kick in there? you have any anecdotes or things at times when people have noted that to you? Well, there, there are two types of, of uh, responses that uh, I get when people find out. And the first one is, what was it like growing up with dad? <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's, you know you're, you're either going to write a, you know, a series of books to describe that, or you say, well, you know, it's like growing up with anybody's dad. You yeah. have all of these experiences, and that, you know, you know, defines both you, him, and uh, your relationship together. But the other, the other thing that happens is, you know, I get this, you're Maury's son. Uh, yeah, so, you know, thank you for sharing him. And I said, well, you know, 
actually, you should, you know, you should thank Dad and you should thank Mitch because you know it wasn't it wasn't me that actually mm-hmm. shared them, but you know, um, uh, these stories that people tell, it's like, wow, you know, my family member went through this and this book was such a comfort or I had some series of issues in my life and just reading about how uh, dad, you know, uh, went through his life. Boy, that was such a, it's such a boon. It was such a, uh, such an uplifting uh, thing that, uh, and so it just makes my heart sore when, uh, when I hear that, because now I know that dad is continuing to be who he was, even though his physical body is not here to have that conversation. Again, mm. the spirit continues. Mm. You know, I, I don't so know true. if that answers your question. But, oh, yeah, you know. yeah, no, it does. And, and I'm glad to hear there haven't been any, any uh, weird moments either, you know, or... or or uh, you know, or people asking for your autograph or something like that. There can be some strange things when books are popular and they're turned into movies and plays and things like that. You've uh, in all that when you read the book, when you saw the film, if you saw the play, uh, how did all that make you feel? Just just in that here was your father in this other form, you know, on pages of a book or on a screen played by Jack Lemon. Or on a you know off Broadway stage or things like that. Did was there any weird reaction yeah, to that? So first of all, uh, you know, full disclosure, it, it, uh, I was not able to read the book after it was published. I I, I was only I, even though I saw a uh, a galley of the book, I, I I couldn't bring myself to read it. Then. Sure. So it, it took me two years before I actually could read the book. Um. And, and when I did, it's like, wow, it's like I'm talking with dad again. So, so the book itself was, uh, you know, became very, very important to me. Um, the movie, and I understand why they made some of the choices they did to, uh, you know, depict the whole situation. I was very happy that, you know, they chose Jack Lemon and, Hank Azaria and, and the uh, the woman that that played uh, mom is eluding me and uh, I can't remember who played Janine in the movie but other than the actors and some of the dialogue I, I, I the movie made me angry <laughs> really because well it was it it just seemed to be so far removed from either the book or it wasn't personal enough, I guess. Yeah. It, it just, there's, there's something about movies for me that I take very personally and uh, it just hit me the wrong way. That's not to say that it's bad. I'm making no judgment. I'm just telling you how I feel about it. Sure. What, uh, the what play you... was fantastic. Yeah, the play was, the play was and is wonderful. It's still being performed so many times in different languages and all around the world but again the play was very intimate it was very much like um what happened uh and of course i you know i co-wrote the play so there's probably a reason for that i I didn't write the movie 
I really wasn't involved with the making of the film. But I, you know, I had the same attitude. I understand that films are going to be different, and I thought the film was wonderful in its own way. Just it wasn't reflective of exactly what took place. But I probably had learned a little earlier than that not to expect that from films because I'd been involved with the <laughs> making of some of them, so I sort of knew. I, I do want to ask you before we let you go. Uh, you know, I found after losing my father a few years ago, I find myself uh, hearing his voice in me, and and I sound like my dad sounded. I have a similar voice, and and I find the expressions I end up saying, and and uh, and the way uh, things I end up thinking, and I realize, wow, this is this is what they mean by you know you become your your parents. You know, when you get to a certain age, I I just find myself saying the same expressions and using the same. In- tone of voice do you find yourself ever uh, channeling your dad maury uh and if so in 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 what ways are you like him uh the the first thing is that when things are going really well either for yourself i hear this all the time because he used to say this all the time and it's like now you're cooking with gas and uh, (laughs) And, um, you know, given where he grew up, you know, cooking yeah. with gas would have, you know, had a whole new connotation instead of cooking with coal. But, but that, that means, you know, you, you've made it somewhere. Yeah. Um, so, so in that sense, I, all these little sayings that he has, um, like, you know, when something is, is no good and, you, you know, it's like Gunug, no more, you know, uh-huh. you know, you know, growing up in the Bronx and, you know, speaking Yiddish for most of his, his uh, younger life. Um, you know, so all of these little phrases come back and I don't necessarily say them, but when I hear them, it's like, oh, dad just showed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when they start coming out of your mouth, that's when you realize, oh, I've taken full root. I've come full circle. I'm telling people they're cooking with gas. Uh, and I'm saying, Gnug, I think, is Yiddish for enough. And uh, Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you start spouting that. Yeah, you really, well, you could do a lot worse, John, than to, uh, than to sound like your dad uh, and, and to channel your dad because he's so beloved. And I, I'm so glad that we're able to do on this podcast what you alluded to at the start is to hear his voice. That was really what motivated me to do this podcast uh, and pushed me over the edge of, you know, I've been approached to do podcasts on different subjects. And I always thought, well, yeah, how much more does the world need to hear me talking? But <laughs> when I had your your dad's voice, well, all these tapes, I mean, it's just got oh, so many tapes of our conversations. I thought, well, there's something that people haven't heard. So I'm happy to share them with the world. And I'm so happy to share them with you and, and play some of, uh, some of his just a, a, amazing conversations to bring... Uh, him back and 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 bring him back to you let me end by asking you what what thing do you personally as his son miss the most about maury schwartz oh boy um just being able to sit down with him and give him a hug you know there was Mm. some there's something uh about being able to hug your dad and uh, have him hug you back. And then, you know, whatever is happening, it's all going to be okay. 
And so I think that's the thing that I miss the most. Not anything he said or did specifically, except for that, that hug. And, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that would be it. I think you spoke very specifically about Maury and very generally about all of us who loved our dads and would, would love to get another hug. Jonathan Schwartz lives in Texas these days, in case people are wondering. Um, how old are you, John? I uh, just turned 61, so turned 61. it's uh, getting up there for me, too. <laughs> well, yeah. well, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure having you on the program, John, and uh, it only makes me wonder now why I didn't do this sooner. We've, we've gone almost a year, and I, it just sort of occurred. Actually, I have to credit Lisa. Lisa was the one who sort of came up and said, why, why are we talking to Maury's sons on the podcast? I said, That's, that is a really obvious question and uh, you know about a day later i contacted you so i'm so glad we were able to uh have you on and share some memories and and i i i thank you for being so generous all your family was so generous and sharing your time that you had with your dad with me to uh you know before it was ever going to be a book or a movie or a podcast it was just a former student coming you know halfway across the country to spend tuesdays with your dad and that took away time from that he had with with you guys, and I, I I always would thank you guys, and you would say don't thank us, and I'm, I'm, I'm you dismiss me, but all these years later, I still feel the same way, and I want you to know my appreciation. And I appreciate that very much, and uh, it it is a pleasure to be on the show, Mitch, and I, I really have to thank you for you know helping to bring the book to its fruition because. We now have, or at least I have, I can't speak for anybody else, but I have, you know, the benefit of dad's wisdom in, in something that is palpable. You know, it's, it's nothing like hard copy. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, but this, uh, this is wonderful. And uh, if you want to do uh, another one of these, uh, we can talk about, you know, dad's anecdotes and things and, I would be more than happy to uh, uh, provide more input experience that would be uh, great. As, uh, as time allows. Well, you're officially one of the Tuesday people here now, uh, John. So you're in the club, so you're welcome back at any time. And I, I thank you for spending some time with us and uh, wish you best of luck as we continue through this crazy 2020 year. Thank you, Mitch. I really appreciate it. And I hope you stay safe and well and give my love to Jimmy and please. I sure will. That's going to wrap it up for today's edition of Tuesday People. You can check us out on the web at wetuesdaypeople.com. Find out about all our conversations. Join in talking about topics and share your thoughts about our interview today. And as always, uh, we will be back soon. On behalf of Lisa Goich, my friend and producer, this is Mitch Album saying see you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday people.